What's up, anatomy nerds? How's it going? We are on episode two of season three, as well as episode two of this week, as well as episode two of my third year of DPT program. Check that out. Look at how that worked. So season three, here we go. Seasons are lining up with what year in school I am, apparently. And we have an interesting situation going on at school this week, which is totally because of COVID. Um, We are taking our year one competency exams this Friday. (laughs) I told this to someone I know who is not affiliated with the program, and they were like, isn't it a little late to determine if you're competent? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's COVID. We were supposed to take this exam a year ago, and yet, if you might recall, we were thrust into a global pandemic, so that got rescheduled. Anywho, um, so today we are going to talk about a small portion of the exam that I think is interesting to learn about, but not in the way that you might think. And also just wanted to, you know, update if you listened to the last episode on the O's, I's, and A's situation of this exam, because if you didn't listen to that episode, we found out on Friday from word of mouth that we were going to need to know O's, I's, and A's for this exam. We have a palpation section where we go and we palpate the muscle and we have to make it contract, put the patient in the correct position, etc. And we were told, yes, you need to recite your O's, I's, and A's as you do this. But like, hello, okay, there are so many muscles in the body with a week's notice. Yes, I know these things already, but like, there's a lot of specifics that we would have to cram into our brains to refresh even on these muscles. It's like things like the distal three-fifths of the posterior aspect of the tibia. Like, why is it three-fifths and not two-thirds? And these are the things that get jumbled up in my brain. So like, I was not happy, obviously, kind of had a panic there and uh, spent quite a lot of time this weekend diving into old flashcards because rote memorization is not my favorite tool and unfortunately reciting as is like a spelling bee requires memorization gross anyway fast forward to yesterday we found out from our program chair oh my gosh we only need to know the actions (laughs) i'm totally okay with that because if you don't know the actions by now like if you're in my part of the program like what have you been doing as far as interventions so far with your patient you have to know the actions because you're doing exercise based on those actions but like yeah so I'm glad that you know we got rid of having to recite the O's and I's Um, the A's are fine I'm okay with that not that the O's and I's aren't important especially the innervations super important but like Having to memorize them and recite them like as if you were like at a spelling bee is not my fave thing to do. So we got past that hurdle. Just need to know the actions. Super happy about that. So what the heck are functional outcome measures and why are we talking about them today? Well, outcome measures are our data collection process. 
And so let's dive in a little bit after the sponsor and we're gonna talk all about it. Hang in tight. So I want you to think back to your prerequisite courses to PT school or to med school or to nursing school. And you probably had to take some basic science in there. I would hope. (laughs) Maybe you took general chemistry, maybe you took biology. And in those labs for those classes, my guess is that you probably did some scientific experiments. You know, the kind where you mix things in a test tube and hope that the tube turns a specific color or produces a certain odor or creates a certain precipitate. And all of those things might be a quote-unquote positive reaction. A positive reaction meaning you did the experiment correctly and you got the result that you expected. And you might have taken that data and analyzed it. Maybe you didn't get the result you expected. Maybe you have to figure out why. Did you do the experiment correctly? Maybe you have to do some error analysis. But at the end of the day, you took the data that you got and maybe you even wrote a report about it. Did you have to write a report about why are you doing this experiment? What's the meaning of it? Why is it important? Why do we care? How did you do it? What materials did you use? What reaction or what data did you get from it? And what does it all mean? Well, that, my friends, is the scientific method. And just throw a hypothesis in there. That's, this is how research is done. So what does this have to do with physical therapy? To be honest, I didn't think it had anything to do with it until I got here. And in fact, I didn't really know that it had anything to do with it until probably my second or third semester. Because no one really ever sat down to say like, hey, did you know PT is a science and here's why? I mean, of course it's a science because you're taking motor learning, you're taking anatomy, you're taking you know, science-based, medical-based content. But where is the scientific method in that? It's just learning facts, you know what I mean? Where do you take the facts and synthesize it into meaning for your patient? Well, you use outcome measures. And what the heck is that? Outcome measures are your data collection process for your patient. So as much as PT is an art in creating interventions and being creative with the exercises that you give your patients and everything like that, It is also a science. So let's talk about how each and every individual patient is a walking science experiment. So I want you to think about rumors that you've heard about PTs or physios outside of the field. Like if you're to walk up to somebody at a mall and ask them like, what do you think a physical therapist is? What do you think they'd say? A lot of people, unfortunately, will say things like, oh, they're just a glorified massage therapist or a glorified personal trainer or a glorified coach. And I want to just be quick to say, there is nothing wrong with being a massage therapist or a physical trainer, a personal trainer, that is, or a coach. Those are all wonderful professions. And in fact, I've been uh, in the training field. 
So I have nothing bad to say about those professions, but they are different from PT. We are not them, and there is a reason why. And there is a reason why we go to school for a very long time to justify that distinction. And much of what we learn is how to do that scientific process on a patient. How do you take somebody who walks in your door, methodically find out what you think is wrong with them, use tests to say yay or nay, yes, I think you are experiencing XYZ, or no, you know what, I don't think so, I think we need to go down a different path. And then using that data to then go and justify the interventions that you choose. Because frankly, you can't just have a patient walk in the door and be like, hey, just by looking at you, I think you need a massage, come on over here. That's not how PT works. Although a lot of the public doesn't really understand that. So let's dive in. How do we do our data collection? Well, outcome measures are research-backed, research-validated procedures where you're scoring the individual and finding out whether or not they meet some criteria for a suspected deficit. For example, there's multiple kinds of deficits that a patient could present with, but we tend to put them into three categories. Is it a body structure and function impairment? Meaning, is it something with the anatomy of the body, some kind of structural deficit, some kind of strength deficit, for example? Is it something about a body part? Then the next category would be like a functional activity limitation. Is there some functional task that this person is having a hard time doing? Are they not able to perform a sit-to-stand efficiently, for example? Think about lots of daily tasks that you do, reaching for something, pushing open a door, things like that. Those are functional activities. And then we have participation restrictions. What is it in your life that your collection of you know, health condition problems is preventing you from doing? Why are you here today? At the end of the day, the patient isn't like, oh, I wanna get better at my sit to stand. They're like, I wanna be able to chase my kids around the living room and I wanna keep up with my grandkids or I wanna get back to the sport that I enjoy. So we have outcome measures for participation restrictions as well. And so we utilize different categories of outcome measures to determine if our patients have the deficits that we think they do. So, for example, different categories of body structure function outcome measures might be uh, measures for strength, for example, like manual muscle testing or handheld dynamometry, where we would get a particular value on how strong a patient is. We might also measure their range of motion using something called a goniometer, which measures how much range you have in different joints. And we compare those values to norms. There are normative values for specific patient populations that we would compare our patient against. For example, you know, age and gender match norms, or based on pathology, stroke patient with 
you know, these comorbidities will have these norms for strength, for example, and we see how our patients measure up. And so those are some body structure function examples. You could also put balance in there as well. Balance, there's a lot of different balance measures, such as the Berg balance scale, where you go through a series of tasks like sit to stand, turning around in a 360 degree circle, things like that, and you rate the patient based on how much their balance wavered during the task or how much assistance they needed from you as the examiner, things like that. There's very specific grading criteria. Um, a functional activity measure would be, for example, there's something very common called a timed up and go test where you're timing a patient from sitting up, standing up rather from a chair, walking a three meter distance, turning around a cone and returning back to the chair and sitting back down. And you would take the time that they get from that and compare it against normative values. And this is a very useful measure because you can determine the fall risk of a patient. So if the patient has under a certain amount of time, then they might be considered a fall risk or excuse me, over a certain amount of time. They take longer than expected, then they might be a fall risk. And then for example, participation measure might be the um, activity balance confidence scale, the ABC scale. So it's measuring the opinion of the patient based on their confidence in their balance. What kind of activities are they limited in based on their confidence? So their perceived ability to, for example, pick up something off of the ground or to get off of an escalator while it's moving without holding onto the railing? Do you feel like you have uh, XYZ percentage of confidence that you won't fall? There's other participation measures as well, but those tend to be surveys that are filled out by the patient. And so those are different examples of outcome measures that you will use in your career and they make up the data collection portion of your exam. Now, I mentioned earlier that these tests are research-backed, research-validated. What does that mean? Well, when we talk about research-validated testing in a PT clinic or a PT setting, we're talking about values that researchers have provided by studying these particular outcome measures to determine how much change is meaningful. And also, if the test is measuring what it purports to measure. So for example, if you have, let's go back to the tug, the timed up and go that I just talked about. This is a measure of functional mobility. So you can't just like create a test and say, oh, I think, you know what, I'm going to have the, the patient, um, I'm going to create a test where the patient has to like crawl on the ground and then like get up and then like step over a few obstacles and then say like, you know what, I think this is measuring functional mobility. Well, in your mind, in a clinical sense, your movement analysis is one thing, but researchers will then need to go and say, what are the exact procedures that you used so that it's replicable to somebody else who wasn't there? What kind of equipment did you use 
what were the procedures for scoring, and what exactly is being measured by this procedure, right? You can't just say, like, I think it measures X, Y, Z. Researchers will then go back and study and say, "Mm, actually, this measure doesn't really measure that. So you can't really use it in a meaningful way. And so researchers will study these different outcome measures and say like, yes, this, and they'll base it off of other outcome measures as well and other research that already exists to say like, okay, yes, this measure will um, accurately, reliably report whether a patient truly has a fall risk, for example. And so then we know that we can use this in a meaningful way for our patient. Besides that, besides the process of saying yes or no, this measure does what it says it does, they will also then, for the ones that, yes, this measures what it says it does, we validated that, they will then go and say, okay, now what is a meaningful amount of change in this test? So for example, going back to our PT exam, when a patient comes in on evaluation day and we decide to run a handful of tests and measures, those data only mean as much as we can progress the patient in the time that we know them. So it's great and all to get a measure of how strong our patient is, but how do we know that that is actually gonna do anything for us unless we test it again later on? So for example, we do a strength test, we find out that the patient has uh, weakness in the shoulder abductors, and so then we decide to target that deficit with some strength training. And we know that strength training takes about six to eight weeks to show any kind of meaningful difference. And so after about six to eight weeks of doing targeted strength intervention for those shoulder abductors, we'll then go back and do either a progress or a discharge report, hopefully a progress report because you kind of want to check in every once in a while, and test the patient, again, using the exact same conditions that you used on day one. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Kind of starting to sound like the scientific method, right? You're going to follow exact procedures like you would in a biology lab, and you're going to hope for a positive test. You're going to hope to see what you hope to see, right? So... You did your strength strength measure on day one. You've been targeting strength intervention on that muscle that showed deficit all along. And then eventually you're gonna retest again and hope that you see progress. And progress is great. Progress is great, but how much progress? What's considered actually good progress? How do we know that, you know, um, For example, if we did handheld dynamometry as that strength measure, how do we know that, you know, if the patient progressed by having a score of one Newton higher, how do we know that that shows anything really meaningful for the patient? So in addition to validating that the test tests what it says it's testing, researchers will also further study the outcome measure to determine values that report the minimum change 
that is required to be meaningful in therapy. There's two particular values that we look at in physical therapy, and they are called the minimum detectable change value and the minimum clinically important difference value. And some measures will have both, some will have one or the other. Basically, the MDC, the minimum detectable change, is the minimum amount of change that will truly show progress and show that the measurement you took is progress not attributed to error. For example, let's say that a patient, I'm pulling this out of thin air, but a patient wanted to demonstrate a certain amount of change to reach their strength goal. And there was an established MDC value of 20 newtons in that strength measure. And the patient got 19 newtons at their progress testing. They would not have met the MDC value, the minimum detectable change value, to say that that change was not just accounting for some kind of examiner error. So the patient would have to score at least 20 newtons on that measure to say, yes, this change is attributed to the therapy that you're receiving. The other value, the minimum clinically important difference, takes it a step further. You want to take special notice of the word clinically important difference, the words clinically important. And that has to do with what the patient will notice. So the MCID is often probably, in my opinion, a more valuable number to use because not only does it show that there's change, it shows that there's patient-acknowledged change. The patient should be able to notice the change at that point. So it's meaningful to the patient in that case. And so um, I want to say that this is a true MCID. I want to say that for handheld dynamometry, don't quote me on this, but I believe the MCID for handheld dynamometry is 67 newtons, which is about equivalent to 15 pounds. And so once the patient has tested at that range, it means that that test is reporting a measurement that the patient should now acknowledge that they notice a difference from that intervention, which would be strength training in this example. So MCID and MDC values are incredibly important, especially when it comes to goal-making in physical therapy. And in the United States, unfortunately, we are beholden to insurance companies and what insurance companies want to pay for in regards to treatment. And so we have to make goals based on these validated measures and the MCIDs or MDCs and progress our patients to meet those goals to justify further payment for their therapy. Um, This is a 
topic for a whole nother podcast, but that's the way that uh, healthcare works in the United States is we have to justify why insurance is paying for the treatment that the patient is getting. And if we can't justify it, the patient doesn't get covered and we don't get paid. So it is important whether you want to work within the system or not. It is what it is. But again, topic for another day. So I hope that that is a little bit more than you knew before about functional outcome measures. And I'll tell you for me, coming into PT school, when I finished up with my prerequisites, I was kind of missing the fact that PT is a science in this way. Um, I left my biology class kind of thinking like, wow, in another lifetime, maybe I would have gone for a PhD in, in biology instead. But I kind of already got down the PT path and was gung-ho about continuing. But uh, once I got here and I realized that, no, our patients are little walking science experiments all of their own, um, I started to kind of see this profession differently. And um, I think it's really cool to be able to show data about how our patients are changing. Oh, and by the way, as part of your examination process, you also will use these MDC values and MCID values to create goals for your patient. And so the goal-making process is very important as well. And so you'll always wanna kind of make your goals based on those values because you wanna make sure that by the end of discharge, your patient made meaningful change. And so there you have it. There's a little bit maybe that you didn't know before. PT is an art as well as, well as a science. And uh, yeah. So for example, how is this relevant to my studying of this week? Well, I have that competency exam on Friday and we are going to be tested on performing one of four outcome measures. And so we have to learn like the really common ones. We're not learning everything under the sun because that'd be way longer than a three-year program, but we learn the main ones. And so for example, we are being tested on the um, Berg balance scale, which is a very, very common scale for balance. It's kind of the gold standard. We are being tested on the modified dynamic gait index, which is a measure of gait. And we are also being assessed on the functional gait assessment, the FGA. And we are also being tested on the mini best, which is another balance measure. So things you will need to know in PT school. Trust me, it's fun. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope y'all are having a great week. And always, as always, let me know if you have questions. Give me a shout out on social media. I'm on Twitter sometimes, Instagram all the time, and TikTok every once in a blue moon at Nikki-Ray. That's at N-I-K-K-I-D-A-S-H-R-A-E. Let me know if you have questions, and we'll be back with more anatomy very shortly. Take care. Bye.